back, everyone, to the Unscholared Health Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan, and with us back again today is Sam Jarman. You obviously like me. Like you enough to have you <laughs> back from time to time. No, we're always happy to have you on. And today we're actually going to be highlighting the topic of martial arts and as it stands towards manual therapy. We can even discuss martial arts in terms of practice, discipline, how it kind of feeds into education even, or just personal experience. Sure. Um, the reason for that. We can talk about lots of things. Yeah, we can really talk about anything today. <laughs> Uh, but the reason we have Sam with us today is because Sam also highlighted how he looks into martial arts as a tool for study and a lens in material in manual therapy and osteopathy. I personally uh, take the chance to help kind of mentor and help others and it came across with my own pain point. They were having difficulty treating larger bodies. So let's call it their pain point. That's fair. Yeah, that's their true. pain point. Their this pain point was... You're a sizable human being that I don't think has trouble with the thing they have trouble with. No. <laughs> Which I mean, is why you help them solve the problem. Probably. <laughs> um, but uh, it actually led into a conversation on stances in martial arts, actually, mm -hmm. as a way to communicate what they were doing wrong when approaching larger patients. You know, sure. They were doing everything uh, as expected to mm -hmm. their knowledge, but then they were having trouble keeping contact or maintaining control of their stance. So they were, you're saying they were doing the right things that they know that that you know they were already taught so they were doing it right based on the lesson they'd received yes okay yes and then but i guess in the circumstance just addressing to a larger individual mm -hmm. they, they became uncomfortable but the topic's not about the larger individual no 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 no, no. it's just how uh, we were able to use martial arts as a point of communication to mm -hmm. make sense of the scenario yeah which is something you and i have actually discussed before yeah now i just I can't recall if I've done this in a recorded fashion or not. The, I think the interesting thing, so you're talking, maybe, maybe if we flesh it out a little bit more with respect to what you did with them, because you, you're noting that you used martial arts concepts that you, you understand to help them control another person's body. Because realistically, when you say a larger individual, it's not even about the size of the patient. It's about the relationship of size of the patient to the practitioner. That's correct. Yeah. Right. So if you know, if I'm 50 pounds, and my and my patient's 100, there's a difference, right? So it's, it's, it's a large that, variance. The understanding of the variance between between one and the other. So what was it that you that you did that helped the students that you're mentoring understand how to do it or how to control in that particular situation? So in the most basic concept, it was widening their stance. So when you say their stance, like widening how they started, like taking their feet a little bit further apart? So in, in both how they started, yes. Yep. So taking their feet further apart mm -hmm. and not so much in a narrow stance, which is what they were allocating to. They okay. would widen it so that they were more stable themselves sure. before ever approaching the patient. Okay. But then also how to step and move with the patient while in their stance. Sure. Okay. Yeah, and then you were because your your primary background is Thai boxing. Is that that's where I spent the most time in okay. Muay Thai and yeah. uh, in in uh, high school and middle school I wrestled and nice. before that I did kung fu in Brampton. Sweet. <laughs> I also have done kung fu. I prefer the Muay Thai. <laughs> that's fair. Um, that was more likely because of what you gained from it, and also also the just that the, it was pressure testing. and the, the personal experience I had with it. Yeah, such, just the, yeah. the social environment. Too. Yeah, you're not making any commentary about a particular art. You're just like, I had a better time with this one. Yeah. Now, if you sit, if you stay superficial, you're like, that's why it's better, because I like it. 
but that's to not great. <laughs> no, but that's why I say it that yeah, way. Yeah. Just to be like, ah, there's a way that this concept is created. So the there were particular details that you were able to call on that helped them do it better. Yes. Right. So instead of sticking to exactly the way that we're taught, you said, hey, there's another. You need to adjust because this isn't working. Right. So they knew it wasn't working, which is why they approached you for help. And then you said, hey, here's these concepts as to how to do this. Well, and it was interesting, too, because uh, clearly it's been working for them to this point. Yeah, until they until they saw, found a stronger variance or larger variance. Yeah, there was a larger variance yeah. between bodies. And mm -hmm. so I think that was good because that highlighted to them, oh, okay, maybe this wasn't as perfect as I thought. Yeah. Yeah. So there's an interesting concept there. Just with what you noted, there's this concept that you can call experienced utility, mm -hmm. right? I've done it this way many times and it has worked, therefore it will work again. Mm -hmm. Now, when you put it into a situation where it doesn't work, you may not notice that it didn't. You're like, I did it right. You can be convinced that you did everything right. It's like, well, if you didn't get to your intended outcome, it didn't go right. right. So your the successes that you have can blind you to how to adjust in a new situation, right? So they were pre presented with a situation where they had to adjust, but they had a problem, so they looked for help. Um, what it sounds like is that you gave them particular details as to how to help the particular situation. Is that fair? Yes, it was. You were hoping to be point to be pointing in the direction of a concept that would help them understand variation more and more and how to do that. But really, the interface that it sounds like you had was how to solve this problem. Is that fair? So yes, and that's right. We did keep it specific to that problem. Yeah, because that's what they asked you about. <laughs> and that's usually how my train of thought goes. We're going to stay sure. focused on the topic. But now, yeah. ideally, hopefully, that will expand into yeah other sections of treatment or other anything else really and here's a challenge it yeah. doesn't no. <laughs> <laughs> the and that's drawing on my knowledge from from education generally speaking or from my health science education background from my understanding of transfer transfer in particular my understanding of cog, like cognitive psychology and cognition it, it doesn't transfer well people are like we taught you the principles yeah but you showed it to me one way so I thought that the principle was this thing. So if I show you, let's just use a common enough manual therapy movement, a supine leg rotation. Some people may call it hip scrubbing, right? Uh, but patients on their back, you bring their, you flex their knee to essentially 90 degrees. It, most won't go to 90 degrees, most will actually go past it, but you close the knee and then you bring the hip to 90 degrees and then the practitioner basically gives that a hug and makes circles, right? The, you can say that you're showing somebody the concept or the principle of rate rhythm and repetition based on how they do it, right? Get a good rhythm, right? So like I taught them that, but what they've learned is rate rhythm and repetition in that move. Yes. Because then you say, okay, we're going to give you this new move and show me rate, rhythm, and repetition. And then they just, they look lost, right? Have you seen or experienced that? Both seen and yeah. experienced myself. Because I guess as you said, I never really thought it that way. The hope is they'll apply it to everything else. Yeah. But you're stating it just doesn't happen. They, they, they don't primarily keep it focused to that one thing. If you see them. it happen once, yeah. you think it happens. But that's a unicorn. <laughs> that's a weird thing. For the most part, there's this concept that is an underlying assumption in education generally, uh, the idea of generalizable skills. 
there isn't much evidence that they exist. Uh, problem solving, so you're, you are close enough to educators, right? Educators and the public system, fair? Yes, I am. Uh, now, this isn't necessarily me knowing any of them or saying anything about any of them, but you have maybe the general ether that they exist in because you somewhat inhabit it because you know them. Yeah. There's this general concept that you can teach critical thinking skills, right? That's not a thing, or it doesn't, there's no evidence that supports that's, that's actually a thing. It's a desire, it's something that there's a lot of ink spilled about, but when you actually look at what evidence supports it, it doesn't. Hmm. The ability to solve a problem requires details, right? So, and this is why it's of interest and why I was asking you about the experience that you had with the people that you were mentoring. It's like you gave them the details to solve that problem. Yeah. But in your head, you're like, I'm showing you how to solve problems, right? But you gave them the de details to solve that problem. Now, it may help them in future situations because if they can abstract the, the deeper thing, it's going to help. Yeah. It just may not help all the time. But in general education, it's like, yeah, we teach critical thinking skills. It's like, no, you teach how to solve the problems that you teach students to do. Unless you very explicitly pull out the intangible, deep feature, the thing that can't be touched or seen, but that connects different things, and give examples of it, they're, they're going to learn how to do the thing you taught them. They're not going to learn how to do the thing that's implied. It's not going to happen. So you have to be extremely explicit. So the fact that you used martial arts in particular to aid this situation is actually of interest because it relates to another set of cognitive processes, which is in learning, transfer seems to be heavily aided by connected meaning, mm. right? So there's this concept of deep features. Deep features don't have a good definition or agreed upon definition, but essentially it's, you know, problem solving, problem solving schemas, right? Uh, like the plot, the story, it's the intangible thing. It's not directly in front of you. It's more implicit than it is explicit. Okay. If it gets pulled out explicitly and you tell somebody about it, they can identify it, right? And then, so there's ways to do this, but it requires multiple examples. It requires the ability to understand that all of those examples share the same feature, right? But the the way to help that is to rely on shared meaning, right? So in, in trying to explain this, I may, I may end up dancing around it. It may not be as, uh, as sharp an explanation, but essentially what you're trying to do is show them how things are the same, Yes. right? You show them how things are the same, therefore the meaning apparatus can be engaged. So in a cognitive sense, like sort of cognitive psychology sense, there's, you can say that there are knowledge nodes or pieces of information, but those pieces of information, this isn't how it actually works in the brain, but this is the way we can describe it. There's, this, there's a piece of knowledge and it's just there. Unless it's connected to other things, you can't pull it to other things. The connection is what you'd call a semantic network or a network of, sh you can say a network of shared meaning in the way that we're talking, right? You're showing how these things are the same. Now the person, the individual learner is going to make their own meaning network, but when you can draw on things that they already know, when you can identify that they already know something, you can almost juice or goose that meaning network. Okay. It's like this, it's the analog. Right? If you only teach an analogy, you're relying on the implicit concepts. But if you give the analogy and pull out the explicit thing, this is what's the same, then that actually seems to be a really good method for for instructing teaching. 
Well, I would, I would think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's a common method that shows up. It does. It definitely does if you're observing. However, what really seems to happen is you're, you think you're observing that because you know the concept that it's like, we'll teach through analogy, but you don't see the explicit abstraction step. They're leaving it to the student to explicitly abstract it. And then when they test them, they're like, well, how come you didn't pull it out? I know I taught it to you. I told you what it was, but they don't pull it out, mm. right? And then they're like, oh, well, that one's a dud. It's like, no, you didn't do the other piece. The other piece is being very explicit about what the abstract concept is that is the same in both situations. The So in this particular case, you had success with helping the meaning network or the semantic network through engaging martial arts concepts. Yeah. Right? Because realistically, we can abstract even further and say it's footwork concepts. We could. Because footwork is independent of martial arts. I mean, we're ambulatory. And and really it was actually, it became a conversation on footwork. Yes. But that was the commonality I could use to express what I was trying to purvey was that. Yeah. Okay. You've... these individuals have had some experience mm-hmm. in martial arts. Yep. I've been in martial arts my whole life. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we can approach it together through this, yep. yeah. this common message. Yeah, so you you pulled on shared meaning mm-hmm. to abstract, right? Which is fantastic. The But as far as the, the fuller abstraction, it's footwork, right? Because footwork in martial arts can be very similar to footwork in basketball. Yeah. Right? The, the ability, if you want to create some form of circle, well, you walk in a circle, one foot then the other. Or if you want to make it faster and make that circle happen in a smaller area, what you do is leave one foot still and then basically wrap the other foot around it so that you can then pivot on the still foot, mm. right? Uh, that's a that's a spinning, uh, like a spinning sidekick. Mm. That's also a drop step in basketball. That's also a spin move in football, right? So essentially what I'm doing now is the explicit abstraction of the central concept. Put one foot down, wrap the other foot around, like send the other foot behind you, wrap it around the other foot, and then you shift the weight so you pivot in a small area. Mm-hmm. That can turn into a spinning sidekick, drop step in basketball, spin move in football. I don't know how well it would work in hockey because there is ice, <laughs> but there may be something there. But I think I think ice skaters do like to create a fit. Finger skaters. Spin. Yes. Oh yeah, their footwork's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know that I want to be a figure skater, but what they do with their feet is fantastic. So we have another layer of abstraction now. So even in the conversation that you and I are having, we're able to take it from the concept of osteopathy being aided by martial arts footwork concepts to say another layer of abstraction to footwork in general, but we're still making those examples explicit with sports. Right? So it's, it's, the, it's the steps that help the semantic network. Right? So that's why it's useful. Now, as far as maybe the crossover between, particularly between martial arts and osteopathy, is it depends on how you, what automatically populates an individual's brain when you say martial arts. Because when I say martial arts to you today, do you, does the same image pop to mind as when you were 10 years old? No, not at all. And why is that? Life experience. Life experience. But you've seen more about martial arts. Right, your experience—you have a young experience in wrestling, but it wasn't a consistent, continued experience. No. Right, and then you have uh, experience with Muay Thai. Now, is it most more most appropriate to call your experience primarily Muay Thai, or is it Muay Brand more? Muay Thai. Muay Thai is more what you did. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the only reason I ask is because I know that we've had discussions where you talk about Muay Brand, which which 
there's similarities. Muay Thai comes from Muay Brian, but there's enough differences to identify. Yeah, and that's just from an experience of trying to dig a little deeper mm -hmm. in literature and such, actually, into Muay Brian, just out of interest. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Was it also because of, uh, what was what was the Tony Jaa movie? Ang Bak. Ang Bak. Was it because of Ang Bak? Yeah, of course. That was one yes! of the motivations. <laughs> that movie was awesome. The, the protect Was it The Protector? That was the sequel. Uh, that one was really intense. Well, not to go into detail, but when you hear... <laughs> When you hear that many snap, crackle, pops, and let's yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, I'm just, it was intense. Didn't he use, like, elephant tusks at one point? You know, it was just, you know, a display of magical violence. Sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what I'm saying. It was just intense. Anyways, okay. <laughs> Diver... <laughs> Tangent from Moiboran. But the... When you think about martial arts, if that term is used... Do you tend to think more about striking, or do you think about combat? You know what, that's an interesting uh, question, because going back to use the example of when I was 10. Mm -hmm. So martial arts when I was 10, especially just watching certain films, yep. series and such, mm -hmm. it comes down to the hero and combat. Okay. In my, to me, sure. at that, because you're just watching them in combat, essentially. Mm -hmm. But when I'm older, I wouldn't say it's so much striking sure. or combat. To me, martial arts is kind of a test of distance more so when I think about it. So uh, when you're saying distance, you're talking about when two people are engaged in conflict. So when two people are engaged in conflict. Okay, or more, more than two. Yes, yeah. using the correct tool, be it a strike, be it a grapple, mm -hmm. based on the distance of the two. So to sure. me, martial arts is almost like chess. Sure. That's how I look at it now. Uh, Joe Rogan talks about uh, problems, like high-level proper advanced problem solving with dire consequences. Uh, I clearly missed that, but that's a great way yeah. to phrase it. Yeah. It's okay. Well, you've heard it. You've likely heard it because I know you listen to Joe Rogan. Yeah. But well, I only know that because you told me. <laughs> Not because I'm making assumptions about you. Stereotyping. Just had to throw that in there. Didn't yeah, you? totally. He's an entertaining individual. <laughs> yeah, there. No need to go down a, a particular rabbit hole in that discussion. But the idea is that there is, there are goals that the two people may not share. One person's goal may to be not to get hurt. The other person's goal may be to rain violence yes. down upon the other individual. So then there's this thing that's happening is you have, you may have similar goals or different goals, but what you're both trying to do is create physical expressions of those goals. Now, you can use that as a classification or a category to then apply to osteopathy. There are, uh, there's an outcome goal that is expressed through physical motion. Or you use physical motions to express that goal. So if we were to do an ontology or classification system, that was the only category we used, martial arts and osteopathy are the same, right? However, we know they're different. Yeah. So we need more categories. Mm. We need to build a larger ontology or a larger classification system. So if you, so to me, at this point, when I was young, martial arts was punches and kicks, baby. High kicks? <laughs> sharp punches. That's what it was. Not even really many elbows, but it was what I thought I was seeing. Now, if you go back and look at older martial arts movies or movies with martial arts sequences, there is a fair amount of grappling. Mm 
It's just you don't think of it as grappling because it's not on the ground. No, and that's that's right. true. Yeah. And there's plenty of elbows, right? There's a lot of things that you didn't pick up on because you were primed to look for the thing you were looking for, right? So punches and kicks—that's what it was for me. And then over time, with a broader understanding of martial arts, right? One of the expressions of martial arts is conflict, or conflict in the physical realm. Because if you listen to Bruce Lee in uh, Enter the Dragon, what's your style? My style? You can call it the art of fighting without fighting, right? So it's a, it's a it's a it's an umbrella term that describes a lot of things, and the, the expressions of those things are not always conflict or combat, right? So. You can talk about, you can possibly talk about a crossover with osteopathy there, where sometimes the therapeutic interface isn't always about the physical expression of the outcome goal. So categorically, they again can look the same. Sometimes you need to get, probably with that one, you need to get a little bit deeper and grittier with the category. So I understand that, but again, somewhat similar. So depending on how you create your constraints, these can look extremely similar or extremely different. But when I think about martial arts now, I think about basically imposing your outcome goal on the situation. If my outcome goal is no fighting, I'm gonna find a way to not fight. Somebody else might find a way to fight and then I'm, I gotta deal with it. But the basic, then the actual physical side. The physical side, my understanding of martial arts has grown over time to very much more include grappling, right? The Arts that have, you're going to find grappling in almost every culture. There's some sort of so. yeah. um, test of strength, physical physical contact without striking. Right now, one of the deals with that is that you can do it again. Striking takes a little while. <laughs> you may break a hand, you may break something else, you may have a concussion. Right, we understand those better now than we used to because it used to be, oh, don't worry, you got your bell rung, come back tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is the worst possible thing you can do to somebody with a concussion, is to give them more head trauma, which is one of the reasons why football is as rough as it is on brains, because you get no choice in football but to have the brain wiggle around with contact. Yeah. Like, there's no choice. Yeah. So they have much more low-grade uh, movement of the brain inside the case. Right. So it's really rough. Hard sport. Sometimes your brain's better off in martial arts, funny enough, even though you get hit directly in the head. I would agree with yeah, yeah. So it's that's a weird one. But anyways, as far as the physical concept, the ability to control somebody else's body. Now, in striking distances, the ability to control somebody else's body is to create motion that creates a predictable response from them. So really, what you're trying to do in most striking arts is get somebody to go to a place so you can hit them the way you want. Yes. They're trying to do the same thing to you. So you're both in these weird rhythms where you're in a spot where the other per you're almost in a spot where the other person wants you but then you do something to try to get them where you want them and sometimes you throw and i, I think i think that's the reason why in my headspace i look at it almost like chess because mm -hmm. it's for that exact reason you're, you're trying to counter their move before they make it essentially yeah or you're trying to get them to make a move you show them something yeah come get this come right. for the faint so that i can and there's crossover with grappling arts because sometimes you'll leave something open so they go there and when they go there you pounce on them. So that's similar, right? Uh, so in that sense, striking arts and grappling arts are exactly the same because the strategy is the same. Create, create a response that you can take advantage of, right? Now, 
depending on how you fill that classification or that category in, osteopathy is about controlling another person's body to get a predictable response, mm -hmm. right? Now, the aim is therapeutic in its nature, so there's the difference, right? So the category that would allow you to identify, so far as we've talked, the difference between osteopathy and martial arts is the category of therapeutic. Is there a therapeutic value to, to, the, to one of these people on purpose, right? Because you can argue that martial arts are therapeutic psychologically to some people, but it's, it's a secondary effect, right? Do you know what I'm saying? No, I do, because, yeah, it may not be the primary reason that person came to learn martial arts no. or practice martial arts, but being in the environment of martial yeah. arts, like in many other... I would say sports or practices, yeah. there is a therapeutic effect that happens. There, it's, but it's secondary. Yeah. It's not the main aim. So the way that you'd have to make this category on a piece of paper is primary goal, therapeutic or not. Mm -hmm. Osteopathy, the primary goal is therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Martial arts, the primary goal is not therapeutic. Yeah. However, it can be by accident. So there's another similarity, but there's enough of a difference in that category that you can see that. So all that said, one of the things to me about martial arts in particular is that in my lifespan as well as in things that are slightly outside my lifespan that I can identify there's been massive evolution of martial arts right how they're practiced how they're applied how they're taught yeah the so to maybe just kind of reel back a little bit so I don't go too far the similarity the primary similarity to me as far as actual physical application between martial arts and osteopathy is grappling the ability to control another person's body because there's points that you can grab onto and create motion, there's points that you can control well, and with the primary aim of creating therapeutic effect, but in martial arts, you know, probably with the primary aim when actually applying physical contact of creating domination, submission, or pain, right? But the actual control is very similar. So when you describe how to perform jujitsu effectively, it's going to be very similar as to how you describe how to perform osteopathy effectively, right? So the ability to control another person's body, very similar. Then the evolution of martial arts and how it's taught, how it's practiced, uh, how it's applied is primarily attributable, if you're being very granular, to Jigoro Kano. Do you know who Jigoro Kano is? Not familiar. Founder of Judo. Okay. So Judo uh, is stripped down Japanese jiu-jitsu in its original form. Okay. So Japanese jiu-jitsu, it was essentially battlefield tactics, but they hadn't been on the battlefield in a long time because the Edo period was very peaceful. So after the Sengoku Jidai, which is the Warring States period, so lots of war in Japan, lots of fighting, lots of martial schools showing how that fighting happened. And then there's this 200 or so year period of relative peace. So those schools continued, but then Commodore Perry comes with some big metal ships and says, open up for trade. Because the Japanese were trading with the Dutch. Mm. They can, when people say Japan closes its borders, it's sort of true. They had particular relationships with particular groups. So they still maintained a trading relationship with the Dutch. So they weren't completely closed. There was some crossover and there was commerce, but the Americans in the form of Commodore Perry came with battleships and said, we're trading with you now. And then they said, yes, you are. <laughs> and 
then they looked around and they looked at themselves compared to these people that they were now in contact with and said, hey, these people have a competitive advantage in technology over us, mm -hmm. right? We need to do something about it. So the Meiji Restoration happens. And then they, they completely abandon a lot of old, they don't completely abandon it, but they change their attitudes towards things of old, which included jujitsu. Interesting. Right? Now, jujitsu is looked down upon at this point in the early Meiji, Meiji Restoration. Jigoro Kano was born in the Meiji Restoration. The story goes that he was not a particularly large person and he was not treated well. So he found some family friends who knew jujitsu and he wanted to learn and they kind of didn't want to teach him. So there's going to be some details in the story that if you look it up, I'm not right on. So which is why I'm giving an overview. He continues to take it upon himself to try to learn. Finally, he starts to learn from the old jujitsu schools. But one of the reasons that the jujitsu schools are looked down upon is because they're quite violent. Or at least what they teach is violent. Right? So eye gouges, biting, stuff like that. Mm -hmm then what Kango does is he knows that there's a social pressure that looks negatively upon this thing, but it ends up helping him quite a bit, right? He really enjoys the martial aspect, he enjoys the physicality, he enjoys a lot of things about it. So he's trying, he's looking at the, the social view of the schools, what's really going on on that side, and he understands that it's looked down upon because it's the old, right? And then, but he's saying this is very beneficial. And then what he ends up doing is because he's like, well, can eye gouges really be taught to be effective when you can't practice them regularly? How many eyes can you gouge? Right? On one person, you can gouge two. Ideally. And then they're done. You can't gouge those anymore. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and if you do, well, they can't see it coming, so it's not fair. <laughs> but what he does is he strips out a lot of those techniques. He goes only for techniques that you can regularly practice, repeatedly, without major harm. So what happens is he allows for repetitive practice against resistance. So there's lots of success with that. There's this one little hiccup where, because he's doing mostly standing grappling, and then there's this one school that does what's called newaza or ground fighting, mm -hmm. and they start beating because they have a lot of challenge matches with old jujitsu schools against judo and he calls it judo because he doesn't really want to be connected with the old schools because of the social negativity mm -hmm. and then there's this one school that does the ground fighting and i do not remember the proper name but it then turns into what's called koshen judo which is judo with much more emphasis on the ground but he says okay you guys beat some of my best come on in so he incorporates it. Yeah. But the big thing with this story is that he creates a training regime that allows for actual sharpening of the skills. Right? Now, that's important in the martial context because there's a lot of physical harm that can come. So this is where it doesn't cross over well as far as the repeatability of practice on a, a resisting body or on a live body. Because osteopathy, really, really because it's a therapeutic game, what you're aiming to find is the is the notable problem with motion that you can deal with and then work on that. Now, if you don't find a problem, you can't work on it. Well, you can also pretend. With osteopathy, at least, you can pretend on a real human being. You can see how they respond to what you do, mm -hmm. right? So the, you can learn the response even if the problem isn't present. So one of the responses that you can learn is if I move you this way, do you tense up or do you stay relaxed? Right, so you, there is more opportunity for repeated practice on, on a live body than in a martial setting because the, there's danger. Correct. Right? 
there's far less, there's not no danger, but there's far less danger with, with repeated skill practice in osteopathy. Right. But the reason that Kano becomes very interesting is because he revolutionizes training. So judo fighters at the time are able to go into a lot of situations because they've done the reps against resisting opponents, where the jiu-jitsu practitioners of the older schools can't practice against resistance because the things that they're practicing are problems. They hurt. They injure them. So they can't continue to practice. So it's the training regime. So the abstraction for myself is what are good repetitive training practices that can help improve skills in the particular physical expression that you and I share, which is which would fall under the term of osteopathy. You can make it a broader term of manual therapeutics. But it's the training regime that's of interest. Because then what ends up happening is the next revolution is pressure testing. And that doesn't really happen until the 90s in the world at large. It's not that it wasn't happening, because there was a lot of... Do you pay much attention to pro wrestling? Not anymore. Okay. Have you, do you know about the Japanese pro wrestling federations and Shudo, and, where they actually had essentially pro wrestling shoots and fights? Just in name, not okay. ever ending observer. So, uh, Sakuraba, you know what Sakuraba was? Sakuraba comes from that. Okay. Right? So, there was active pressure testing of martial skills in varying places. It was happening. But the story that you'll hear is primarily it was the Ballet Tudo or Anything Goes Challenge matches from the Gracie family in Brazil that ended up coming into the Gracie Challenge when the Gracies were trying to spread Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in California particularly, in America at large. And there's those old grainy videotapes of the dojo storming, mm-hmm. right? So you'd go to the Gracie Academy and then they'd pick anybody from the Gracie Academy and they'd whoop your butt, <laughs> no matter which martial art you had, because they had the benefit of training against live resistance because they weren't hitting each other regularly and they weren't throwing each other regularly. So their skills were sharp against resistance. So then what happens is a pressure test area because the UFC is this way to promote Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, which can be also termed Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but to be more accurate, it's Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. They start pressure testing it in live competition and really quickly, everybody realizes, wait a minute, this thing that I've been practicing, the way that I've been practicing it, it's not working. It's not that the techniques in any martial arts system are bad techniques, you're just not good at them. And you know, you've seen different martial arts where they have different hand positions for striking. Yes. You're like, that'll never work. It's like, not for you, because you don't condition your hands. The people that they come from, the people that would have used those techniques successfully conditioned their hands. Well, you, you and I have actually touched on this in the past about mm-hmm. conditioning hands, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, you'll see a video of someone puncturing wood with their finger. Yeah. And, you know, the comments will be, well, that would never work. But as you just stated, I'm repeating. Yeah. Well, it only works for them because they condition their hands in such yes. a way to allow yeah. that force to be directed through the wood. Yes. Yeah. So, all, the techniques in all these old martial arts, the, the actual movements themselves, do have appropriate martial application. It's just the way you practice it, you suck at doing it. Because you learn how to do it without the pressure test. Mm-hmm. So the next revolution is the pressure test revolution. Right? Now, interestingly enough, with respect to osteopathy, is you already have both available to you. You have the ability to repeatedly practice against a live, or not against, with a live body, because you can judge their responses to everything you do. Whether you find a particular problem that that requires treatment or not, you can practice the motion, and you can see how they respond. What I would say is, for the most part, that's very implicit. Nobody tells you that that's what you're doing. Nobody tells you that you can do it. 
right? You can just work on work on this thing repeatedly. That's fine. What they'll tell you is they kind of throw you. It seems like they throw you right into treat what you find. Well, how do I find stuff? Okay, well, you use these assessment skills. Well, okay, right? But the idea is that you can repeatedly practice emotion against a living, with not against with a living person, and then see what the responses are, even if they don't have a problem, because it's part of your bank. But it has to be explicit. Mm. So the thing for me is the abstraction, the similarity of live, live human, and repetition. That's the pressure test. Yeah. Right. So it's not that it's, that's not the pressure test in martial arts. The pressure test is martial arts is getting a fight, and the rules dictate how that fight happens. Yes. <laughs> Whereas in osteopathy, the pressure test is when you find a problem, does it work? But the repetition, the ability to practice, is always present as long as you have somebody who's willing. Correct. Right. So you can create guidelines for how to repeatedly practice a movement. Right. Now each person is going to be a little bit different because some people are going to be like, "Dude, I'm just pissed off. I don't want to do. I don't want to do this again." So it's okay to take a break. That's fine. But you can create systems around that to to engage the training, and then you can create or you can identify, not create, because they already exist, but you can identify crossover concepts. Right. Uh, when you were wrestling, one of the things that they probably told you is once you get them on the ground, try to control as many parts of their body so only one can move. Yes. Right. Like you're trying to you're trying to pin somebody because your aim was pin, like a pin, win by pinfall, possibly by points. So it's like okay, if I can't pin them, I want to be able to hold, get my hands in a place where I can roll them. Yeah. Right. Because if you roll them, you get points. Right. So you're like okay, you have your aims. Which is why the rules dictate how the fight happens, but you're trying to control somebody's body. Now, I don't know if anybody has said this to you explicitly, but one of the best ways to do that is have as much of you covering all of their parts so that they can't move as possible. Well, and, and tying back to my experience in wrestling, that's mm -hmm. exactly what they would teach us. It's, yeah, it's basically no different than actually maybe in applying short leverage or application osteopathy. Yeah. just have as much surface area mm -hmm. on the body to have control. Yeah. So, having identified these concepts and seen it somewhere else and seen that the major revolution in martial arts was primarily the, the training revolution and the pressure test revolution, I'm like, okay, well, what are the similarities? What can I pull from that? So, you are aware of a lot of the heuristics that I put out, so the concepts that I put out to guide how, to guide how you can generate assessment and treatment, right? So, you know, the things that I talk about, patient positioning. Right, so table makes stable. So the more of the patient that's in contact with the table, the more stable and controlled they are, the safer they're able to feel. Less table means I need to make the patient stable. So the less of the patient that's in contact with the table. So let's say a patient's in supine or prone, most of them is in contact with the table and controlled. Right. If I put them on their side, less of them is in contact with the table, less of them is controlled. Right, if I put them in seated, very little of them is in contact, very little of them is controlled, aside from the fact that they're upright and they don't want to fall, so they'll do most of the work for you. <laughs> That's why they're more resistant to motion, to passive motion in those positions. But now how do you deal with that? Well, the space between us is unstable, right? If, so which means I want to minimize space between us. I want you closer to me. And then how do I choose which position to put you in? Well, I choose that based on I would like the anatomy to be interfaced with, to be exposed, free to move in the directions required, or the planes required, and preferably visible. I'd rather see it, right? Because if I can't see it, I have less sensory information to know what the hell I'm doing. So those are the guidelines for how to do that. Well, the thing that ties all that together, 
contact is control. And control is safety. So if the there's less of the patient in control with the or in, in contact with the table, I bring them closer to me so there's less space between us. So less table means makes the patient unstable, or less ta table means I need to make the patient stable. I minimize the negative space, so the space between us is unstable, and that leads to more contact. So it's the contact, the broad contact, that allows me to control the patient, allow them to feel safe and stable and stay relaxed. And really that was what encouraged this conversation when I was mentoring these students, mm -hmm. just for the fact that, you know, uh, you come, you came at it from a grappling standpoint. For me, I can only draw more so from... What's your personal experience? That's the details that, those are the details that inhabit your semantic network. Correct. So when I use stances, because when I was taught Muay Thai mm -hmm. and I did practice it, you want a stance that's also fluid, so you, mm -hmm. you're not just stationary, you do take a step. And you don't have deep stances. And no. you don't take big steps. Not usually. Not if, usually. If you if you got the right circumstance, take a big step and whack them with your leg. Right. And, <laughs> but yes, and going back to the stance, you know, you want it to be stable, mm -hmm. so that no matter what tool you use, so let's say you are throwing a leg yep. kick, you can return back to your stance quickly, mm -hmm. so you have those tools available. And yep. that's kind of what encouraged it with these students. Yes. Was just the fact is, they were faced with a problem, and they themselves weren't stable enough to maintain mm -hmm. contact with the patient. Now here's where the details become interesting, right? Because I would pull it more to a footwork abstraction. Now the other thing that, so you're, again, using the details that inhabit your semantic network. Yes. Because you're doing that, there is something that you're missing. The table can make you as a practitioner more stable. So you may not have to rely on the position of your feet as much because sometimes you can rely on the table. And the problem was specific to the case of the variance in yep. size in a seated position exactly. where the patient is now naturally yep. less stable. Yeah, so if you if you were being extremely practical, it's like... Just lay them down. Yeah, you know, put them on their side, bro. Yeah. <laughs> or, here's the other thing. The This also pops up in a lot of the YouTube content that I have, what, especially when I'm talking about seated. There are certain things in seated that are just unruly to do. For regardless of variance in size. So, make them do most of the motion first, you add the rest. Which is something I had to highlight yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, oh, you actually, oh, we didn't, we didn't discuss that because I was like, so here's the other deal. Hey, unnamed student, tell the person to rotate to a position of comfort, then you grab them, then you don't even have to worry about your footwork, just shuffle. <laughs> and say, well how, well, how do you walk around the table? <laughs> Move the foot and move the foot that is in the direction that you want to go first so if you want to if you want to walk if you want to walk around the right right foot left foot right, right foot left, left foot. foot yeah right now that sounds extremely similar simple i have done a video about that actually there is one i, I can't remember what pissed me off but i did that <laughs> something pissed me off which is usually the motivation for me to do stuff i was you know there's a degree to which i'm annoyed at how things are Communicated as far as the deeper concepts, the deeper features, the, the heuristics. I like the term heuristic because heuristics suggest a search pattern that doesn't guarantee a solution, whereas an algorithm suggests a search pattern that guarantees a solution. And in the human body, there's less guarantee of solution. Right? So I prefer a search pattern. Right? That's the way that I like to talk about it cognitively. But the, the details matter because you're trying to solve that particular problem and help them solve that problem you go to the details that would solve that problem. You can abstract it further and say, well, why are you doing that? Like, well, why do you think you have to? You don't have to do it in this position. 
Because realistically, here's another concept that I use to communicate. Relational motion, one thing stays still and the other thing moves in relation to it. So if you're trying to create rotation of the torso, right? So you can pick any point on the thorax or on the torso, because the torso includes abdomen, right? You can pick any point, I don't care which point it is, and say, I, would, I want to rotate that. Now, if you're talking about direction of rotation, you need a reference point, right? So in a lot of engineering stuff and a lot of architectural stuff, even in automotive uh, and electrical, WRT with respect to. This is positive with respect to this other thing, right? So the if you're talking about rotation of the torso, you're talking about it with in relation to the lower body. So you can say lower body, you can say pelvis, you can say hips. It doesn't really matter, but one thing needs to stay still and the other thing needs to move. So if the person's trying to rotate a seated patient, they're trying to rotate the torso in relation to the relatively still pelvis. So you fixate the pelvis and move the torso. You can do that in lateral. It's fairly accessible to you. You do have to be attentive because the patient is a little bit less stable and less able to stabilize themselves. They're a little bit more likely to get out of control at that point because they're not used to controlling themselves there. And that just turns into a wrestling match if they do. Right? You can do it in prone. You can pull the shoulder up, however, because you have to go across the table and pull really hard. It's hard on you as a practitioner, but you can do it. In supine, you can grab a shoulder or you can grab an arm and pull it right across. And then you can, if you feel like it, some people would use a strap. You can strap them down to the table, or you can put the hand on the pelvis, yeah. right? You can, you can do the same thing in all these positions. So the question is, the question becomes, do you have good reason to rotate them? If the answer is yes, okay, you're having trouble with this. I'm gonna help you solve this so that when it come, comes to the situation where you have to, you can. Because if you need to rotate the person and they can't lay down, now you have to do it seated, right? If you can rotate the person, if you need to rotate the person and they can't sit, and they can't lay in any way, but they can sit, do you have to have them sit on the table? And now I'm gonna highlight, because this was actually some time ago, but it, it became more of a conversation on just problem solving, as you said. So mm -hmm. the reason for their problem was the individual's not comfortable in supine or prone or laying yeah. down. So this is why it became this kind of unique problem. How yes. do I address it in seated? But yep. then in highlighting what, you know, it's funny when you show these concepts because to them then it's like a light bulb goes off. It's like, oh, that was yeah. common sense. I should have thought of that. Yeah, but, but this is why I say it's a detail-driven process. Right, and we can circle back to the beginning of the conversation mm -hmm. where just it wasn't explicitly shown mm -hmm. or detailed enough so that they yep. come across. But then it, it was the funniest moment was when, okay, now we'll just pull up a chair rather than use the table. Yeah. And yeah. now you're taller over the patient's mm -hmm. room and you have more control. So Yeah. But depending on the on the chair, the back gets in the way. Exactly. Right? Now sometimes you have to make them sit so that the back is at one of their sides or the side that you mm -hmm. need it to be on. But that thing's still in your way, right? So you have to start to negotiate that, which is where the details actually drive the problem solving ability. You can have the concept, if you know the concept and you really know it, and you understand what's the same in varying situations, you can start to wield it, but you still have to solve with the details, right? So that's what becomes very important. This is why you actually don't see people being particularly generative or creative when they only learn the concept or realistically what happens is you learn the concept and you learn a move so you think that the con the concept is the move they're together they're stimulus paired they're never pulled apart right so if i tell you that the concept of 
you know, rate rhythm and repetition, it, like I teach you the concept of rate rhythm repetition in a leg rotation, that's where it lives. All right, over time, you'll accidentally apply it to other things, right? But you'll, it's, it's stimulus paired, it's, it's in one package. You need to open the bag, tell them what's inside the bag that lets the bag be what it is, right? So, and then you need to show it to them in other places. This is why people run into that problem of salt, of, of having to transfer, take a concept or skill learned in one setting and apply it in a setting to some degree of difference or dissimilarity, right? I had the experience and probably the personality where I was chronically challenged with how would you do this, right? That was just something that happened in my experience and some of it may have been my personality because other people solved it. Right. My classmates, people that I was around, were able to generate solutions. I may have taken it very much to heart in my own experience because I would be in, in a practice setting and I was like, well, how else can I do this? How else can I do this? How else can I do this? I had a point where I was sprinting and I, my calf got injured, right? So something happened. I think it was just a really bad cramp and it hurt a lot. <laughs> and something did go pow, not 100% sure. No subsequent imaging because I'm stupid as a human, right? For myself, but when helping others, I'm quite talented and intelligent. <laughs> I think I think many can yeah, that. that's that's fair. So I hurt my calf. I was in one city and had to drive to another city because I was I was just working out in one place for varying reasons, and I was going somewhere else. The entire drive, I'm thinking, this is myself thinking about the next day when I have this particular person that I know that I have to treat and I have to do something that I have this preference of doing in one way. I'm like, I definitely can't do that. It hurts too much. Mm. So I'm trying to solve it. So I'm like, okay, well, what's the central feature of that thing that I'm trying to do? I'm like, okay, this is the central feature. So now I know what the central feature is, like what the mo actual motion is and how I'm trying to move this one piece in relation to the other piece. So now I can generate solutions. But until somebody tells me that that's what I'm supposed to do, I'm like, okay, well, I need to do a leg rotation. The other thing that helped me with that is I had the experience of working as a kinesiologist and having to create exercises for people who couldn't always do them the same, right? They had mobility restrictions, so I'm like, okay, well, how do I get them to do this movement? I'm like, okay, I can make them do this movement like that. So that's a thing that primed me. And then it turned into these other things, and then I articulated it in a particular way, which is now available on the YouTubes. <laughs> Would you say, because now we're, we're speaking on content as well and the way you approach something to mm -hmm. a student, because um, martial arts itself, like if we if we look at, let's say, old forms of Kung Fu. Sure. You had your like... Well, it depends on what you mean by old forms, because a lot of things that we think are old forms are actually new forms. Okay, so let me rephrase <laughs> that. Let's let's think of the cinematic universe where you see someone in like a tiger stance and a snake stance. So you're, you're are you talking about mostly like the Hong Kong movies? Yes. And, and the reason I ask is because there are differences within Chinese martial arts, location to location, and actually culture to culture. Because when you talk about China, and you say Chinese people, they're not the same as one another, right? There's, there's uh, like Manchurian arts. Like, I don't know much about the Northern arts, but usually what you'll hear is Northern arts kick more, Southern arts punch more. Uh, there's arts that are generated from Hakka people who inhabit the South, Cantonese people who inhabit the South, right? And then there's other things for different reasons, and they do have locations. So I just say that because Hong Kong happened to represent, as far as I understand, more Cantonese arts. Okay. Right. Anyways. So I think we're then talking on Cantonese arts. Most likely. 
but um, a lot of them stem, or at least in narrative, they stem from some form of observation. Of the natural world? Yes. Yeah, well, that's the story you were told in the movie. Yeah, that's why they said <laughs> yeah, yeah. enjoy the sit Fair enough, right. But now, for example, the students that I was helping with, again, we spoke about how they had like a light bulb go off. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't think why they couldn't have it, but they, clearly they just needed to observe mm-hmm. either themselves or someone else doing it yeah. first. And, that's the example. And this is something we discussed before about multi-sensory learning as yes. well, a multi-sensory approach to treatment. But yep. So even though they probably had the tools to solve the problem themselves, ideally, they just needed an observable source to put yeah. it all together. Okay, now this equals yep. this. Yeah, so as, if, you, if you rely on the concept of the semantic network, they didn't have meaning attached to it, so they couldn't pull it out. Mm. Once they have the meaning attached they're like, oh, that's what it is? Oh, whatever. <laughs> when, you, when you dig a little bit deeper into those animal styles of martial arts, because those are different hand postures, the people that would do it effectively conditioned their hands to be able to do that thing. And realistically, the idea of the animal styles was more about the strategic concept. Yes. It wasn't about looking like the animal. You would look like the animal because sometimes... In a real fight with somebody who did those arts in the past, it probably didn't look like that. It probably looked like a fight. I would say so. Yeah. But the idea was the strategic concept. How does a crane fight a snake? Right? There's a way that they do it. So you get that concept. Okay, trap a limb and hit him. Mm-hmm. Because the crane is going to step on the snake and then bite it. Yes. Right? Or peck at it. Because if the snake can't really get away, then it can't. It has a range in which it can coil. And then you peck at it. So it's like, okay, trap a limb and then beat him. So it's like a hockey fight. <laughs> you can say crane style is like a hockey fight. Yeah. Right? Uh, mantis style. Well, how does a mantis fight another mantis? Because mantises fight mantises. And some people bet on them. <laughs> I'm aware of this. But either way, what you're seeing is certain concepts. So if you're not abstracting as far as you can, you're going to mimic the motions because you think it's the, it's the shape of the motions that allows for the results. But realistically, it's the strategy, right? I don't think there's many animals that don't have some kind of grappling, right? If you watch bears fight, they're basically doing, they're wrestling and doing jujitsu. They fight from their back. I wouldn't. I would have to agree with you. I can't think of any animal that doesn't. Yeah, but we don't know all the animals, right? right? <laughs> At least not right now. <laughs> now that's and we have definitely not observed them, right? Like I've never seen a wild bear, but I might. Like, does a shark grapple? Uh, I don't really know what they do. They ram and yeah. they bite. They yeah. do ram. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. Dolphins are gang fighters. I know that one. Yeah, yeah. they're not very nice. <laughs> I've read yeah, like, so <laughs> I guess animals with opposable limbs, mm. right? So maybe land animals is what we're more talking. It's hard to watch. If if you don't have gear that can keep you underwater for a long time, it's hard to watch a dolphin fight. Mm. So the observations would be from land animals. There you go. That's a reason. <laughs> or a reasonable explanation as far as we can figure. The But the idea being that when observing those things, you can either pretend to be like the bear, or you can say, what's the concept that allows the bear to win? Right. The concept is the more important thing. So this comes back to the semantic network and the abstraction, right? The underlying feature. That's what it comes back to. So, uh-huh. <laughs> Any other thoughts to share on this topic? Not at the moment about this topic. Okay. You have other topics in, yeah. in Pine. Yeah. I seem to I seem to really like learning. And a feature of the arc of my life is people are like, how do you know that? Like, I like to learn. I just pay attention. <laughs> to a lot of stuff and I accidentally have really good learning behavior I have horrible study behavior 
but well, horrible traditional study behavior, mm. but because I have horrible traditional study behavior, I'm a great learner. Because I have all the good learning behaviors completely by accident. It's because I don't want to sit still and listen long. Maybe that can be a topic for next time. Sure. Do you have any new content coming out on YouTube that some listeners can expect? Yeah, slowly over time. One of the things that I'm working on now is what I will call a textual analysis of historical osteopathic work. Uh, what I'm doing is going through early osteopathic writing and identifying the themes with respect to something we've spoken about before as philosophy of science, epistemology, ontology, and axiology. So looking at what the themes were within the osteopathic profession in, in purposely selected texts as to what they thought about what knowledge was, how it was created, uh, what reality was, what governed reality, and what their values were. All right, so I'm going to highlight those over time. Those are going to be very long videos. I don't know if everybody's going to want, want to watch them all, but I will hit you know important names. I've already got a video up about looking at those concepts with Dr. Still. Uh, I think I might have put up the one on hazard. I don't remember. I've got little John. I'm going to do uh, Carl P. McConnell. I think you've done E.D. Barber. Oh yeah, Barber. That's the yeah. one. First book. First book on osteopathy. Um, and then I go forward in time a bit to William Garner Sutherland. So this is stuff that's, that I haven't filmed yet. And then I look at writing that describes these concepts in osteopathy as it stands today to identify whether or not those features stay the same. Because when you look at history, uh, do you know the difference between history and prehistory as far as definitions are concerned? None for non-definition. Written and unwritten. History is written records. Prehistory is unwritten records. Perfect sense. <laughs> so in a strict technical sense, if you use that definition, there are prehistoric societies alive right now. Right now, we probably wouldn't see it as such or define it as such, and there may be a particular definition within the communities that would look at these things that may, there may even be a different category for that, uh, like coexistence, I don't know, but the difference is, you know, written versus unwritten. So historical records or written records can show the first evidence that other people would have been able to interface with of a concept. Mm. And that's kind of what I'm looking for. What did early osteopathy think about how knowledge was created, right? What knowledge was, what truth was, right? Because knowledge and truth can be somewhat synonymous. And then what they believed reality was, what was real, how did you identify, how did you build knowledge, and then what their values were, right? So that's coming. I am very likely also to re-engage with old material to sh in the written descriptions to show what those things would have looked like, looked like, because I have seen people who are very interested in reading old osteopathic texts and say, oh, hey, this method from this author, it's awesome. I'm like, okay, do you have to do it exactly that way? Well, that's the way I do it. I'm like, you could do it different, <laughs> right? So I've already done some of that where I looked at older, older descriptions of technical application and shown it. Uh, I'm likely to do more of that. The one that I did more recently that I'm going to post relatively soon, and obviously depending on when you listen to this, the time doesn't matter. Like, there's one from Little John that just pissed me off about how to coordinate the nervous system, right? So, and also the method that he suggests. I'm like, dude, you don't like your fingers? <laughs> he suggests using a, uh, a thumb and a forefinger to push on either side of the spinous process, like from occiput to coccyx, then all the way back up. I'm not going down to the coccyx. And then go down faster, or then go down faster, and then put them on, put their left side down. I messed up in the video because I put their left side up. 
but the way he says it, he's like, I found that the best results are obtained by putting the patient, laying the patient on their left side first, and then their right side. Now, I don't know exactly why, but it secures the best results. I'm like, okay, well, that's individual empiricism, bro. Don't act like that's absolute truth. So he's making a constructivist claim, it depends on him. When, but he's making it like it's a positive claim, this is the best, objectively. I'm like, no, it's not. If don't you worry. want to hear more about truth, you can listen to it's our earlier episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, but I'm likely to continue with those. Uh, and also, I am continuing with a research arc with my thesis supervisor. So I'm always doing stuff. And like I said, I'd like to learn, and it's highly varied. And they can find you on YouTube and on Instagram. Yeah, so Instagram is Jarman Osteo, J A R M A N Osteo. And then. Uh, YouTube, I believe. I think I'm getting this right now. It's just because it was associated with an email, so I think it's SJAM81. But either other way, either way, if you search Sam Jarman, J-A-R-M-A-N, and then uh, you put the term osteopathy in, or op- what I tag it as is osteopathic manual practitioner, I will show up on YouTube. If you just search Sam Jarman, there's a golfer. Okay. Right. So, watch so there's me the golfer, yeah. and the golfer. Mm. Right? So, but if you Sam Jarman or Samuel Jarman, uh, J A R M A N, and then any like O M M, it it should pop up. So if I'm messing up on the S J A M eight one, because it might be one nine eight one. So I'm pretty sure it's one nine eight one. Yeah, and realistically, like it's my stuff, so I should remember it. But I never pay attention to that part. <laughs> I just do my work. Uh, yeah, there's lots of stuff there, and then I also do conversations I have more but I release them when I feel like it which are the attempt and intelligence conversations where I'm talking of you know rooting a lot of the discussion in the philosophy of science but myself and my friend did an episode using the philosophy of science to talk about Ricky Bobby which I know you watched yes <laughs> well he's a Will Ferrell Will, yeah. Will Ferrell fan and he's very polarizing. polarizing yeah he really is I I knew somebody who would not let their significant other watch any Will Ferrell and I look forward to his upcoming film with Ryan Reynolds. Oh, the, it's a Christmas one, right? It's a Christmas one. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> I think with that, everyone, thank you for tuning in again to the Unscholared Health Podcast. This is Stefan and Sam. Until next time, stay tuned and talk soon.